Hey, this is Shane Valenstein, the pastor at City on a Hill Community Church. I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. I hope that this podcast helps you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at cityonahillmd.org. Enjoy the message. Of our series called Reclaimed. And what we're doing this month is we're doing a walkthrough of the book of Ezra and actually part of the book of Nehemiah. And all month long, we're walking through this story that we see with the Israelites and with Ezra and with Nehemiah with an attempt to understand what's going on in this book and to understand what it means for us today. So last week was the first part of the series, so if you missed it, it's okay. Uh, You're not going to be lost or anything like that, but you can go and watch it on, on YouTube, check out the podcast. And what we learned last week was that King Cyrus of Persia, he was allowing the Israelites to return home to, to their home, Jerusalem, to rebuild their home. So they were, they were in exile, meaning that they were, they were basically defeated, the Israelites. They were defeated, they were captured, they were in Babylon, and then Persia defeats Babylon, and then after a number of years, 70 years, King Cyrus makes a decree, allows the Israelites to return home to Jerusalem. But what we discovered last week, that some of the Israelites were up to the task, and others didn't quite have the motivation to pursue that renewal, to, to pursue redemption. So some Israelites were like, thanks, but no thanks. I don't really want to put in the work. And then other Israelites were like, absolutely. They, they were excited to go home. But there was a lot of work ahead. And this whole story is all about God keeping his promise of redemption regardless of our actions. Because when God promises something, that promise is, is not, does not hinge on us, on on whether or not we come through. If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He will follow through. People, not quite the same, right? People, not quite the same, but God always keeps his promises and says that he will, and he always comes through. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Cyrus made a decree allowing the Israelites to return home, and those who decided to go had to make a grueling 900-mile trip home. And there's no Uber, right? There's no trains, there's no cars, 900 miles to get home. That's a grueling trip. I'm sure that they lost some lives along the way. We doesn't say it in Scripture, but they they had to have. So now they're back home and they're in Jerusalem. Now what's next? What what happens now? They made made the trip. They made the 900-mile trip. They're they're there, they're back home, they're excited, they're ready to go. What now? And it tells us in Ezra chapter 2 at verse 68, it says this. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. So so the Israelites return home, excited. It's kind of like when you make a trip and you finally get there and you're like, all right, now what do we do? What's, what's the next step? And when it's vacation, a lot of times, right, there's excitement with it. Or maybe you just made a big move. You move to a different state or a different part of town, and you're like, okay, we're here. Now what? The people are excited, and they're ready to go. Some people are donating money. They're donating resources. And the first thing that they want to do is to rebuild the temple, which is the right decision. That, that's the right decision. Their priorities are in the right place here. Before they do anything else, they say, let's rebuild build the temple. Because you have to remember, this is before Jesus came back. This is before Jesus was born, not came back, before Jesus came for the first time. So what that means is the presence of God was not like it is today. 
Today, we have the Holy Spirit. We, we know that God's presence is everywhere. At this time, God's presence was not everywhere, but God's presence was housed in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple. There was a central location for it. So they needed to start at the right place. They have the best intentions. Their hearts are in the right place. So the rebuilding of the temple is led by a guy named Zerubbabel, which means, his name means planted in Babylon, which is interesting. That's what his name stands for. He's representing a nation that was born in captivity. Because even though it's, it's been 70 years since they were initially uh, put into exile, since they were initially captured, there's like a whole new generation that has come along that doesn't know life in Jerusalem, that doesn't know their home. Now, there are still people living who do remember life back in Jerusalem prior to the exile, and those people are actually still here. But this generation, the next generation of Israelites, they know, they know nothing but exile. That's the only thing that they do know. That's their entire life. They didn't experience anything else. So this guy, Zerubbabel, comes along, and he literally means planted in Babylon. And we see this new generation who is leading the rebuilding. Here, here's what happens in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel, I'm sure I'm not saying that correctly, but that's okay, Jeshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. So there's something to, important to note here, okay? This, this particular story is talking about the temple, but it represents way more than just the temple. See, it, it also represents a community of people. A community of people who are rebuilding. It's, it's not just the rebuilding of a temple. It's the rebuilding of a nation. The rebuilding of, of a group of people, a community of people who are coming along, coming together, who decide to do something hard together, but important together. Something big. So it, it's not just a building. It's, it, it's not just, oh, we're, we're back in this part of the world. It's a nation a people, a redeeming of that. And really what God is saying to the Israelites is this, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you yet. Actually, there's a lot more that's going to happen. There's, there's a lot more that I'm going to do in you and through you. I haven't forgotten about you because while they're in exile, it would be easy to think, well, he's abandoned us. He's, he's, we're in exile our, our world has fallen apart. Our lives, if we know it, has fallen apart. Is God abandoning us? Is he still with us? Does he care about us? Was he ever real to begin with? All of these questions have to be going through their heads. So coming back home and rebuilding the temple is an important thing. But here, here's, here's what we learn from this, okay? Redemption starts with the foundation. Every single time. Because in verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord. So remember, this is the same exact location that the previous temple was prior to the exile. 
they come back home, and they're like, okay, where was the temple? It's in ruins. It's, it's been totally destroyed. And they come back home, and they go to the exact same place, and they want to build the temple again. However, in order to be successful in the rebuild, where do you start? You have to start at the foundation. Because if you don't start at the foundation, then all of a sudden, everything else you build is just going to be a house of cards. Every, every other thing, that you, every other wall that you put up, the stage that you put up, the, the, the Holy of Holies, everything will fall apart unless you've got the foundation right. In other words, to rebuild the temple, they had to start from scratch. It wasn't like there was a foundation that was still good to go. They had to completely start over from scratch, which scares a lot of people. Sometimes we get to a place where we're like avoiding to do something because we just don't want to start over, even when we know we probably should. It's like, ah, I'd rather just, just kind of like mask this and, and just not think about it and just make it look nice. As long as it looks nice from the outside... That's all that I care about. I don't really care if it's actually falling apart underneath. I, I, don't, I don't really care what else is happening. And, and we get to a place in life where, where we just don't want to start over. I, I've already committed so much into this relationship. I, I've, I've, been, I've been in a relationship with this person for four years. I can't start over now. What, am I going to go back to dating again? I can't do that. I know, I know that this person has their problems. I know that our relationship probably is a little toxic. I know that it isn't the most healthy situation for me to be in, but I've, I've invested too much. I can't just start over. I, I can't just start over from scratch. I've, I've worked at this job for the last 20 years. What am I going to do? I know it's not good for me. I know that it's not healthy for me, but what am I going to do? I can't start over. It's too late for me. I, it, it, there, there's too much on the line. I know that I've been watching this terrible TV show for six seasons now, but like eventually, I've invested too much. I don't even like it anymore. But I've watched six seasons, and hopefully they end it soon, right? That's what we do in life. I've invested too much, even when we know that it's not good for us, even when we know that I don't even really enjoy it, even when we know it, we still keep going down that road. Why? because we don't want to start over. We don't like rebuilding. We don't like tearing everything down, building the foundation again, and starting over from scratch. But if you need renewal in your life, if you need redemption in your life, it has to start at the foundation, the foundation of your life. Because if your foundation is not solid, then everything else you do is just fake. It's just fake. Everything else you do. It's kind of like going to Disney World, right? You know it's built on swampland, right? Like in, in, in Orlando. There's, there was nothing else in Orlando prior to Disney World coming. That's why they built it there. Because it was cheap and there was nothing else there. And when Walt Disney was looking for a place to build Disney World, he was like, this land is cheap. Nobody wants to live here. It's a mess, so let me build this place. And now it's, what, the most magical place on earth? <laughs> How did that happen? It's all fake. 
It's none of it's real, right? I hope there's no kids in here, right? <laughs> none of it's real. And we look at it, do you think it's, <laughs> you're a kid, yeah. <laughs> and we look at it and we think, we walk in and we're like, oh, wow, look at this castle. It smells like cookies everywhere I go. Why is that? It's because they're literally pumping in the smell of cookies on Main Street if you're in Magic Kingdom. I don't know if you know that, right? The Dodson's, you guys, right? That's what they do. It's all fake. And that's the way a lot of our lives look. We're, we're, we're just Disney World on Swampland in Orlando. That's all that we are. <laughs> our foundation is nothing. Our foundation is terrible, but we want to appear a certain way. We want to look a certain way. And so we ignore the foundation and we focus on other things. And sometimes we need to tear down our life down to the studs, relay the foundation and start over from scratch and build it from the ground up. And if you need renewal and redemption in your life, spiritual revival, this is what it means. It means getting back to the foundation of the Christian life and making sure that those things are solid. It includes repentance. It, it includes confession. It includes prayer. It includes the word of God. It includes obedience. It includes faith. And if those things are not solid in your life, then your foundation is shaky. Do you ever see somebody who's been a Christian for a long time or follower of Jesus for a long time, somebody maybe that you've even looked up to, and they've been in ministry maybe even, maybe a pastor, and for years and years and years and years and years, it's like, man, that person's got it together. And then eventually they get to a place in life where they say, I don't even believe any of this. And we say, how? They've, the last 40 years of their life, they were preaching teaching, or not even that, could even just be, they were following, they were, they were, they were volunteering at church, they, they were involved, they, they seemed to be in the word. How in the world could this be the case? And here's how, when our foundation is lacking. So when they go to rebuild the temple, they look around and they're like, we've got to start over from scratch. If, if we're going to do this the right way, we have, to, we have to start with the foundation. And as we talked about last week, if we're going to rebuild, we have to be ready to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and get to work. Rebuilding is not an easy job. It's very, very, very difficult, but it's worth it. Don't fool yourself and think, well, I've, I've already put too much time into it this way. I have to keep going down this road. However, if you do try to rebuild your life, if, if you do get to a place where you're like, okay, I'm starting over, I'm, go, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm ready, I'm making a change in my life, I'm going to quit this addiction, I'm going to leave this behind, I'm going to get my life right, I'm going to get my marriage right, I'm going to get my job right, I'm going to get what, my attitude right, and I'm going to start following Jesus. If, if that's where you're at and you're ready to go, be ready for this, because here, here's what comes. Opportunity welcomes opposition every single time. Doesn't mean that, that it's always going to tear you down. But the minute that opportunity is there, opposition is around the corner. And we have to be ready. We have to be prepared. Because when opportunity comes along, we can look at this opportunity and think, wow, look at this. This is going to be so great. I'm so excited for this. I can't wait. And we forget that it's not going to be perfect. And it's not going to be easy. 
And there's going to be other things that feel like it's working against us in life. Normally, what most people do, whenever anything bad happens to us, we go, of course, my luck, it always happens to me, right? That's, That's normally our attitude. Of course, this didn't work out the way that I thought it would because the world is just out to get me and me alone, nobody else. Why can't my life just be simple and easy like everybody else's? That's normally our attitude. But we have to realize opportunity welcomes opposition. And we, this is the theme of the entire book of Ezra and also Nehemiah. Opportunity and opposition. Be ready for it. Here's the first form of opposition that we see with Zerubbabel, right? So it's Zerubbabel first. Next, we're going to talk about Ezra. And the next, then the last, we were going to talk about Nehemiah. Zerubbabel, he comes along and he's rebuilding the temple. He's leading it. Here's the first form of opposition that we see. It's generational opposition. And it says in, uh, in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, all the people gave a shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they got to a place where they got the foundation down, something to celebrate, something to be excited about. But many of the older priests and Levites and, head, and, and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. So here comes Rubabel and the Israelites. He's leading the next generation of Israelites. Remember what his name means, planted in Babylon. So he's leading the next generation. The previous generation of Israelites who, who were originally in Jerusalem, they're getting older. They're, they're not doing so well, physically maybe. And sometimes you need to hand the reins over to the next generation. So here's Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, and these guys are coming along, and they're leading the Israelites, and they're very excited because sometimes when the next generation it gets the reins, sometimes the excitement gets the best of them, right? It's like, ooh, all right, the inmates are now running the asylum, right? They're ready to go, and they're excited. They're, they're going to go, and they're going to make a difference, and they lay the foundation And all of a sudden, the previous generation bursts into tears, weeping. Why? Because they had seen the former temple. They had seen the temple before exile. They they had seen what it was looked like, and it was destroyed over 50 years ago. And this new temple, it just wasn't the old one. It It just didn't compare. It isn't what I grew up with. It isn't what I know. It isn't what I've always experienced. And these godly men and women are longing for the good old days. Back before we had all of these crazy things happening. Back when life was good and life was perfect and we didn't have to deal with all of the stuff that the Gen Z generation brings along or whatever generation you don't like. Probably millennials. That's me. Right? Whatever. Whatever, whatever the younger, youngest generation is, it's their fault, obviously. It's always their fault. Well, this world, what, what, normally what the older generation says, they're always like, well, you know what? 
you're going to have to deal with it, you and your grandkids. I'm not going to be here anymore, so good luck, right? Like, that's normally the attitude. Good luck, because who knows what life is going to be like down the road with these decisions that are being made. And, the, and the, the older generation is looking back, and they don't like it, because it's not what they know, and it's not what they are used to. See, just because something isn't what you know doesn't mean that it's worse. Just because something isn't what you're used to doesn't mean that it's worse. And by the way, that doesn't just go for the older generation. It goes for every generation. Just because it's not what I'm used to doesn't mean that it's wrong. That doesn't mean that, it, that it's worse. See, my, my dad and I, we argue all the time um, and, uh, and it's probably because he's wrong about it, but um, <laughs> we argue all the time about music. And uh, my dad grew up in, uh, in, in the age of Led Zeppelin, and um, that, he, he liked Rush a lot. He, he liked Sticks. He liked those sort of bands. And, um, and I think that they're very good bands as well. Um, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong, but what, anytime that he talks about music, he always goes, man, the music in your generation is terrible, <laughs> right? I mean, you guys just don't know good music because the music in my generation, it's the greatest era of rock history that has ever lived. That's what he says, right? You guys just wouldn't understand. You, would, you don't get it. And a lot of you are nodding your heads right now, right? Yeah, thank you, Chuck. Yeah, amen. <laughs> I think that's somewhere in the book of Ezra, right? Um, <laughs> and a lot, of, a lot of us, we feel that way, right? And, and my argument with him is like, I understand what you're saying, but... Just because it's what you like doesn't mean that it's better than everything else. Like, he, he has a way of whatever he likes discrediting anything else, right? Like, and that's what we do in life. It's like, well, this is what I know and this is what I like. And if, that, and if it doesn't fit into that, then it's garbage. It's not any good. And so we get arguments all the time about, like, music and, and generational music. And it's different. It's hard to compare. It's kind of oranges to apples because it's a different way of going about it, Right? For my dad's generation, he's in his 60s, so, so you can figure out if this is you or not, but like, for his generation, it was all radio, and it was, that was how you discovered music, that was how you discovered different bands, where now, for, for my generation and the next generation, it's streaming, and there's so many different artists that you can discover because you don't have to go through the record labels anymore, and there's more opportunities. Now, that probably waters down the quality of it at times, right? And, there, and there's garbage all around. But the point is this. point is this. He thinks what he knows is best. I think what I know is best. And we're both right and wrong. We're both right and wrong. And if we get to a place where it's like, you know what, I only like stuff from my generation, then I'm going to ignore things from other generations that are quality, that's quality stuff. I'm going to miss out on great stuff and vice versa. If we're so focused on what we know all the time, then we're going to miss out. But it's, it's, not, it's not just the, the old heads that are out of line here in, in Israel, okay? Because the young guys are coming, young guys or girls are coming in and they see the older generation is weeping. They see that, that this is painful for them. And what do they do? They cheer louder to drown them out. So much so that there was so much noise. It says, 
People couldn't distinguish between the weeping and the celebrating. And what, and what the younger generation does, which is a mistake, is the younger generation comes in and we think, time for the old people to get out. And then, and then we try to force, or I'm, I'm putting myself in the younger generation at times, but the younger generation <laughs> will force the older generation out and we think, deal with it. We don't care. You had your time. It's my time now. And, and it's so easy to ignore and to push out and to push away the previous generation, that the younger generation misses out on so much wisdom, so much experience, so many lessons to be learned because we think we've got it all figured out. And it's every generation does this. Every generation. Because we're arrogant people. And it's been happening all the way back in the book of Ezra. They're like, oh, great, here comes old people crying about the good old days again. Let's just try to drown them out. Let's just, let's just try to push them out. Do not disregard the generation before you. Listen to them. Learn from them. Because here's the truth. Churches can do this too. If we, we, we get focused on like, oh, we want to be a, a young church or, or we want to be a church that's established or whatever it may be. And, and sometimes churches can even focus on generations. But the truth is this, every church is but one generation short of extinction. Every single church. One generation short. It's not about focusing on just the here and now. It's about laying down a legacy of Jesus that lasts forever. But churches can get to a place where we grow, we grow, we're doing so well, but then we stay focused on what got us to where we were, and we don't ever adjust, and then we ignore the previous generation, or we push out the older generation, and it's a mistake every single time. The church of God is multi-generational. It's for everybody, not one group of people. The second form of opposition that, that Zerubbabel and the Israelites face is this. Cooperation leading to compromise. See, in, in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, it says this. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So what we see is this. These are the people of Samaria. And if you don't know anything about the, the nation of Samaria, you've probably heard the story of the Good Samaritans. The, the Good Samaritan. This is the former northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, So Israel was at once one nation, and then they were divided into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, because they had some fighting going on. They didn't like each other. So now two separate kingdoms, two separate kings, all that sort of stuff. So this is the former northern kingdom of Israel. Now both of those are gone because they're in exile. So now it's just one nation, okay? Back, back to one nation. But this is the former kingdom of Israel, which is people who were left behind, and the Samaritans were a mixed race. That's what they were. You see, the, the, the nation of Assyria, the Assyrians, defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, and they intentionally intermingled with them to create religious confusion. So here's, here's the hard part. 
This, the, the people that are coming along, the Samaritans, are like distant relatives, kind of like half-brother, half-sister, half-cousins of the Israelites. And now they're at this place where they come along and they're like, hey, they, they even say, like you, we seek your God and, and have been sacrificing to him. But that's not the only God they've been sacrificing to. See, it's kind of tricky. They're coming along and they're saying, hey, we believe in the same God. We just also believe in these other gods, the Assyrian gods, because that's our country. That's our nation. And the Israelites, they're like, uh, I don't know about this. Yeah, we're kind of related. We kind of have some, some history together. And, and they seem to be acting like good neighbors, but their offer is dangerous. It's a dangerous offer because they don't want to help rebuild the temple. They want to influence the culture of Jerusalem. That's what they want to do. So coming along, they're like, hey, we'll help. We like your God. He's cool with us. Well, how, how can we, how can we, let us lend you a hand? But there's an ulterior motivation here. They're, they're looking at things as to what they can gain out of it and how they can influence their culture to make it like, they, like, like the Samaritan culture. See, this is, this is a slippery slope to be going down. And this is, this is exactly why it's so dangerous for the church to put culture before Scripture. This is dangerous. If the church focuses on culture above the Bible, we lost. We're lost. Now, it doesn't mean that we ignore culture altogether. Because we have to be along with the culture. Here's what I believe as your pastor, and here's what we believe as a church. I am willing to do anything short of compromising Scripture to engage the culture. That's what we're willing to do as a church. As long as God's Word isn't compromised... If it engages the culture, I'm in. But I can't compromise God's word. Ever. And that's why churches look different in 2023 than they did in 2013. Or 2003. Or 93. Or go however far back you want to go. Churches look different because the culture changes. Culture changing is not a bad thing. But the culture is not what drives our sense of morality. We get confused with that, where we think, oh, this culture, this is the way culture is now. And just because this is the way culture is, I guess we've got to go this road. And I talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend, spend a whole lot of time on it. But sometimes our cooperation with the culture leads to a compromise of our integrity. Dangerous. And for Zerubbabel and the Israelites to allow the Samaritans to come in and to cooperate with them, it would have compromised their integrity and they wouldn't have been able to keep going down the road that they were supposed to go down. If all opposition was obvious, it would be easy to avoid. But it's not always obvious. Sometimes there's opposition that we don't ever see coming. So the thing is, we have to be prepared. You've got to be prepared. And that's why your foundation is so very important. If your foundation is not laid, then when opposition comes in disguise, you won't be able to call it for what it is. You won't be able to recognize it. And then you'll fall into the temptation and go down a road that you don't want to go down. And then that's how you end up 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line. And you're like, how did I end up here? How did I get to this place? And a lot of times we got there because we weren't ready. 
because we didn't have the right practices in place. It's like my golf game, Tim. I wish that I learned healthy habits prior to really getting into my golf game. But instead, what you do is you start golfing and you develop unhealthy habits and your swing and any little thing can mess it up and then you, you're used to it. Now it's a part of who you are. And then to break those habits is so much more difficult. And instead, I wish I got lessons first and foremost and I learned about what, the way that I should swing and what I should do differently. It's the same thing in our life. We have to lay the foundation first. It will be so much easier for us down the road. But opposition comes in many, many, many different forms. We've talked about two today. Generational opposition and then cooperation disguised. Opposition disguised as cooperation. It comes in many different forms, but the point is this. Be ready. With opportunity comes opposition. We have to know that. But with the right foundation, you'll be all right. Doesn't mean you won't mess up. Doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. That's where that grace comes in that we talked about earlier this morning. Be ready. I'm going to invite the worship team up as we, as we get ready to close. And I want you to think about your life, okay? Whether you're starting over from scratch or not, whether you feel like you need to or you're not sure or you're like, I did that before and, and, and I'm going in a good path right now, regardless, opportunity welcomes opposition. Opposition is not bad. Actually, it's a very good sign. If you're, if you're thinking about your life and you're like, I haven't really had a ton of opposition outside of like minor things, you probably need to do a little bit more. You probably need to be a little bit more active, a little bit more intentional on the decisions that you're making, on the way that you're going about your life. Probably need to take a little bit more risk. We have a saying here, City on a Hill. We don't have failures. We just have experiments that didn't work. That's it. We'll try something. We're, we're, we'll try to go down a road and we'll try to different things. And if it doesn't work, be humble enough to be like, ah, I should start over. Because it's better to start over than it is to keep going down this road with a foundation that isn't level. And then all of a sudden you're walking in a house sideways. How did I get here? starts from the bottom up. So get serious about it. Be intentional about it. You'll see your life change. Let's stand and let's sing together.